Webster's Dictionary defines compliance as the action or fact of complying with a wish or command. This is the Compliance Guy. The Compliance Guy. As a healthcare provider or healthcare professional, navigating the muddy waters of compliance can get tricky. And that's why we're here. Helping you mitigate risk while increasing your profitability. This is the Compliance Guy. Now, here's your host, Sean Weiss. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Compliance Guy podcast. We are live streaming here on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitch, Stitch, TikTok, (laughs) Yo-Yo. I don't know. I'm just making up names of platforms We're not on TikTok. But anyways, (laughs) yeah, no, we are not on TikTok. All right. So, hey, welcome to the program. Thank you all for tuning in, logging on, and hanging out with me and my all-star crew today. Um, I know I didn't give a whole lot away uh, in the uh, post this morning uh, about what we were going to be talking about today, but I think we're going to talk about physicians and their infinite wisdom. And now I love physicians. I love all the physicians that I get an opportunity to work with, but I think we would all agree at times we are often mesmerized by some of the things that they ask us. Or they tell us that they are going to do. So, again, I'm going to take just a couple seconds uh, to, uh, again, brag about the fact that I am once again a grandpa. This is number six. uh, A beautiful, young, healthy boy named Clancy Jones. We call him Jonesy. Was born. uh, I forget what day. But anyways, he's here. And we're loving it, and uh, I'm just grateful that when I heard he was a screamer, he is staying with my son and daughter-in-law. Um, so with that said, I'd like to go ahead and welcome some of my favorite folks to the program. Christine Hall, Terry Fletcher, Scott Kraft, Paul Spencer, and Stephanie Allard, who is with us in voice and spirit today. So welcome, everybody. Good to see y'all. I hope you had a wonderful weekend. What say you? Hey, Sean. Was what a short you weekend. You, you, short. Your uh, glasses look like you're about ready to swim. Are those your new um, swimming <laughs> goggles, or what are those? <laughs> oh. <sighs> Sorry. Christine, how are you? Today, we told you to go with those. We like I'm doing great, Sean. Thanks for asking. It was a short weekend, uneventful, the best kind, right? Absolutely. I also had a lovely weekend. Just binge watching movies and running and things of that nature. Oh. All right, fine. Oh, I, I love the other one. I was just wondering where you got them. I wanted a pair. Welcome back, Mr. Kent. Those are my those are my my reading glasses, but I figured, you know, I had two pairs, you know, one that says I'm serious and the other one that says You're underwater. I'm here to party. Perfect. Okay, go. I'm underwater. <laughs> All right. So uh the abuse has started as it is uh, always expected from this group. And with that said, let's go ahead and jump in because I know we have a lot of folks that are um, waiting to hear what's been going on to these topics first. So I want to give you um, first crack at having this conversation up here into the center square and give you the floor my friend okay well hello listeners and watchers and everyone out there i'm actually excited to bring this to the panel today and i got permission from one of our loyal followers uh, pam venterbilt so pam i see you're on today thank you um one of the things that that was put out there um was now that we know the end of phe is coming the public health emergency um, she had a, a provider who be like nameless, but was asking if he could do all of his initial visits by um, telehealth and then all the follow-up visits in person. And so just to establish care. And that to me, not only was seemed a little suspect, but you're going to have all kinds of, of payer issues because I've noticed that several payers commercial side has, have already come back and rolled back the 
uh, allowing for new patients via telehealth. I saw United Healthcare put out a statement, a couple of the blues put it out. Um, Medicare has issued a couple of things with, you know, how to roll back and, and prepare for the end of PHE. And that patient relationship is going to have to be um, something that is established before you can get into that uh, telehealth space. So to me, that wasn't a good idea. To me, that's trying to get around the system. Um, one of the things that I brought up, because we always come up, try to come up with some new stuff every week, was what was the physician thinking? And that's kind of where we're, we're here today uh, to talk about, because I get things like, and here's my favorite, I'm going to start from the bottom up. Um, Terry, can I bill for a service that I need to do in April, because we can't get the patient in the on the schedule in February, but they're going to lose their insurance in April. So can I bill it in February so we can get paid and then perform the surgery in April. I'm going to leave that right there. And actually, I want to see what Paul says on that. <laughs> Paul, to you. <laughs> um, well, there's no such thing as the minority report when it comes to surgical <laughs> procedures. Uh, you cannot bill before they actually happen. Uh, <laughs> you can't? Uh, Are you I, sure? <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure. I mean, uh, you know, someday, somewhere, there's going to be a cardiothoracic surgeon in Milwaukee who's going to be billing for my bypass, but not today because I don't need one today. Yeah, it, it's that was one place it started. And then uh, another one was um, a provider's practice that where they want to, it's always that they want to get around stuff. And I think that one of the things we've probably all seen, and I know Christine has seen it because we've talked about it, is lifestyle medicine where the doctors basically say, I want to take my patients on a run or on a jog, and then I want to bill insurance companies for that time. My favorite one is I want to bill um, my nutritionist that I just hired before finding out if there's anything they can actually do, um, minus a patient who has diabetes or chronic kidney disease. They're saying, so I want to have them follow a patient to the grocery store and help them shop and bill for an E&M service. You know, one of the emojis Sean oh. used when we first started this whole thing was a face plant. <laughs> so, Christine, yeah. feel free. Heard oh my gosh, um, I have I have another group right now that since they they're trying to find ways of expanding their E and M visits, allegedly, and um, so they have started with a new diagnosis called other counseling. And, and I don't know if everybody knows, I live in South Florida, so we are all sun worshipers. It's a good idea that we get our skin checked by a dermatologist, although I have to be careful with that. It's not one of the preventive services that's recommended by the U.S. Preventive Task Force. And so it's not a covered preventive medicine, just a full body skin exam. So, so trying to get that uh, either significant separately identifiable visit, they're adding this other counseling where they're telling the patient, you know, you live in South Florida, you should wear sunscreen and it's a good product to use. So they're using that diagnosis of other counseling to support, try to support an E&M visit. And I find it just very disheartening that there, th this is not even a good attempt in my opinion. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> this is I, I hate to say this this way, but part of me when you're saying that is like, so they're doing a full skin exam and they can't find a single thing. I, I often say to them, you know, well, well, the, the so here's what I would say. A lesion that they're worried yeah. about. But here, here, but remember, here's what I would say. It's not what your findings are. It's what the intent of the visit is. Right. That's so complaint. what? Right. So when, when I have comments that come up where, you know, we're give you an example, we're in the process of preparing for a civil trial coming up here in the next month. And part of what transpired was that the patients were presenting for preventive services. And unfortunately, those preventive services, the, the majority of them were not, you know, they, they, they were preventive. There, there was no, there was no diagnosis that could be carved out to allow them to bill for a significant separately identifiable EM service, right? And what was happening is they were 
doing the evaluations, finding something diagnostically wrong with the patient so that it would then support being reimbursed. So under under and I'm surprised that this this did not escalate. I really am surprised that this case has not escalated to a criminal case because if you look at um 31 USC or 18 USC 1349 this is conspiracy to commit healthcare fraud. I think that they're lucky that this is going forward as a civil matter. Um, but folks, you know, it, it, you have to remember, and I equate this, Scott, to when we're talking about colonoscopies. If the reason for the colonoscopy is a screening, irrespective of what the findings are during that colonoscopy, it is still a screening colonoscopy. And that's the same thing um, that, you know, I think we have to look at when it comes to preventative services, you know, um, well, kind of, Sean, Paul, kind Scott. Of. Okay. Well, Terry, you know, was... there. kind of it is. It, Go ahead, so Scott. You can list the screening as a primary diagnosis to trigger benefits, but then if it turns out to be a polyp removal, you have to bill it as the polyp removal and link that diagnosis to that. So they still get the benefit of, of no, um, mm -hmm. copay, but they still would have to pay their deductible because now it is a surgical service. Well, and, and, you know, what I do see with screening colonoscopies sometimes is where the fishing expedition occurs is on that visit that prefaces the colonoscopy that is by Medicare specifically bundled where the, you know, so when I had my screening colonoscopy, this group was like, we don't need to see you. Like you can just come in and we'll do like a five minute phone call just to ask, ask you a few questions. But, you know, I've I've had numerous conversations with uh, GI doctors over the years, less about the screening colonoscopy turning diagnostic due to a finding and more about how do I get paid for the CNM visit prior to the screening colonoscopy? I, I have a similar experience to you, Scott, now uh, that I'm at the age of having had two screening colonoscopies or one screening and one surveillance. Uh, I also did not have that E&M service. Uh, so... Uh, honestly, being that it's a screening service, that's just a referral for a screening uh, surgical service, and there's no need for an E&M service, right. uh, particularly if they're uh, asymptomatic and uh, lack family history. Oh, well, that's what I, I tried my... to explain it to them is that if you don't have a problem you're addressing, you don't have an E&M, you may have a possibility of a preventative, but preventative to me is head, and toe, head to toe based on age. It's not a one focused area, you know, so I do get that, though, just from from a lot of auditing where they're like, where where do I get the E&M covered? They said, because a lot of times the primary care doctor doesn't take a full history. And I'm like, well, that's a, that's too bad. So that is something you might want to have a questionnaire sent out for all your screening patients. But it, but here's a question that I want to pose to. Here's a question. I get where you're going with that, Terry. But here's a question that I want to pose to you and to the entire panel. So in the preventative guidelines, right, the 99381 through 99397 series of CPT codes, in there, if I'm not mistaken, it, it simply states from a history and examination standpoint that it has to be clinically appropriate, right? It's, it's sort of in line with what the E&M guidelines are. And as I've always understood it, and, and if I'm wrong, please help me on this. As I've always understood it, when it comes to an annual physical code, one of those that I just mentioned, it's at the physician's discretion as to what they determine to be an appropriate history and or examination for that patient based on their age and their history well, the, with dealing the, with that patient. Now, well, the, the exact wording, I believe, is age-appropriate uh, examination, and that uh, that actually go that actually goes in line with the uh, age breakdowns of the codes, uh, being for you know nine nine three nine one being for younger patients, and then three nine seven being for sixty five and older. Uh, but it depends on the specialty as to what they're going to be looking at under that preventive service, because you remember. Uh, uh, in certain specialties, and I'm thinking of OBGYN here, uh, 
in particular, there are things that are written down by ACOG that are very specific to this is what we would expect to see in a preventive exam uh, for a female patient. Uh, so it depends on the specialty. Most of the time when you're talking about preventive services, you're talking about uh, uh, internal medicine and family practice uh, handling those codes. Uh, and it's hoping that you only bill one per year uh, because that is always fun when you have multiple doctors who are trying to build that preventive code. Well, and, uh, and but, to me like that, that as a practical matter is probably the bigger concern with like a specialist like GI trying to do that pre um, colonoscopy exam as a preventive is if I then go to my primary care doctor and I get the full head to toe physical and it happens in the same calendar year, where am I sitting at with that? Like, I don't, I think it's not the intent of either the pre colonoscopy visit to essentially be a head to toe preventive done by the gastroenterologist. Um, I, you know, I, I think there's, I think there's some grieve, like I appreciate the grievance that I commonly hear from these providers about how unusual it is that they're being asked to perform this procedure, having never met the patient face to face. I mean, those are those are the rules, right? And unfortunately, you know, those are the rules as they are in place. And, and you know, the question I have for the panel that I see sometimes when we talk about diagnosis fishing is suddenly you've got this patient and we say this is the presenting problem patients do for a screening colonoscopy. And now we've uncovered some sort of very minor gastroenterologic situation, right? Like the patient reports having had like a stomach ache two months ago but appears fine today or something to the effect that, you know, now here's a thing that I'm going to treat and conveniently will have now have a billable service. Well, and what happens a lot of times at these meet and greets, and this happens too in pediatrics when there are, there's a meet and greet for a um, pre-visit before the, the baby's born and they want to know if this is the pediatrician they want is that uh, some of the pediatricians are charging just a cash fee, 200 bucks and saying, come in and, I'll go over with you and you know what, how I treat patients, what our office is like and things like that. And I was willing to pay it, you know, years and years ago. I think when I did, it was about a hundred dollars. Now it's much more, but the thing with the, with the GI, if we stay on that topic or even with the, um, the OB-GYN and you guys all brought up great points <clears throat> is that first of all, the patient does expect no out of pocket with a preventative uh, because it's something right. that's usually covered once a year. There's there, they would be <clears throat> surprised when there is uh, some out of pocket for them. And with the No Surprise Act, we have to be careful with that. The, the next thing is that then you also take a benefit away if they already have one scheduled with their primary care doctor. So now you've encroached on a benefit that they already had planned head to toe um, with, that, with that primary care doctor. But to, to um, Scott's point, that we usually, I mean, first of all, I would not want a gastroenterologist doing a vaginal exam. That'd be a problem. But you, you do see a lot of the specialists trying to pull some of these um, preventative services in for something that it really isn't defined as that. It's more of a comprehensive, head-to-toe, age and gender-appropriate, you know, type um, thing going on there. But just to kind of go back to something we were talking about earlier, I know um, you see Pam's down there, Sean where she says that her provider wanted to do the patient visit, the new one as self-pay and then as telehealth. And then all the, oh, it looks like subsequent, oh, subsequent by telehealth um, as with established patient visit codes. I, I just wouldn't, I just wouldn't go there. It's just, it, it's so yeah. suspect. I mean, oh my it, gosh. It, it, yeah. I <laughs> you mean, know, here's the thing. Here's, give me one second, Scott, and I'll come right to you. Here, here's the, guidance that I give to all my clients. If you think something sounds sketchy, it probably is. And you should probably avoid it. If you have to run the scenario through your head multiple times to try and find a way to justify it to yourself, it's not good. Stay away from it. Yeah. It's the scratch and sniff test. You know, it's like I tell people all the time, right? There was a great line in, in a movie called Pure Country, right? And he, he kind of walks over. George Strait was in this movie. And he walks over to George Strait, uh, the father of the daughter, and he says, you know that little speck at the top of bird crap? It's still bird crap. Well, that's what I would assess. You know, that's how I would assess this situation, right? If, if, if you look at something and you can't legitimately find 
medical coverage policies, local coverage guidelines, local coverage articles, national coverage, uh, 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 you know, documents. If you can't find something that would be considered a generally accepted standard of medical practice, you are starting to dip your toe into the deep end of the pool. And if you don't have a life preserver and you're not a good swimmer, probably not a good idea. Scott, go ahead. What were you going to say? Yeah. So there were a couple of things. I think, first of all, your point is a very good one, right? When you're starting to think of all the derivative ways to do something, uh, that's a Can bad idea. Can you say idea. that again, um, please? Because I, I don't hear that enough. Can you please start that over one more time, please? Your idea is a good one. I wanted to isolate <laughs> it. So in case you need to play it as part of the promotional materials for this, but you know, there's a couple of wrinkles to Pam's question that are interesting to me. Uh, first of all, the patients are out of state or out of country. And I saw that in the original question. And so, you know, there are implications with respect to the provider's license to practice based on where the patient's physically located. So, you know, before we even get into all this telehealth stuff, there's a question about, well, is this provider licensed to practice in Georgia, South Carolina, Montana, Michigan, Wyoming, Massachusetts, Connecticut, wherever, you know, France, wherever this person may be located. And, you know, the other thing about this provider's idea to me is that the telehealth, the whole notion of telehealth for a new patient visit is really not so much an insurance regulation as it is a state telehealth law related to the provision of telehealth services typically outside of the PHE. So during the PHE, we had all these exceptions, right? But typically outside of the PHE, the idea behind seeing the face-to-face, -face, seeing the person face-to-face -face first for telehealth is not to mollify United Healthcare. It's because that's what the state's law dictates should happen. And so, so if you're, you're then, you know, so, and that's before we even get into how's the insurance going to view this initial 99214. And they're going to say, well, this is a new patient visit to us because there is no claim activity. I mean, this doesn't pass the sniff test on many, many levels. Scott, you know, it's funny. I was listening to Sean talk about, I, I don't encounter very many providers that really think about, um, am I crossing a line? Am I not crossing a line? What's, is there a payer policy? Like, I don't, I don't ever experience that. I hear, I am the doctor. This is good medicine. This is what I'm doing. I should be paid the highest amount. I'm the authority here. And that, bear well, with and me when I say that I, I'm going to say it. I don't think that, I think that this is beyond arrogance at this point. It's entitlement. I'm the doctor and I'm entitled. So they're not thinking of payer policies. They don't think they're doing anything wrong. They don't, they don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm having an argument at this moment with a doctor who well, and it, has no credentials on his notes. And I said, you should do an attestation with your credentials. And he said, I'm the doctor. I don't need to do that. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple right. of things that I would say about that. Like, you know, I don't know. I, when I talk to providers and I do the trainings on things, I stick to the expertises that I have, right? Like I don't tell them. And, and I used to say under the old guidelines, like, look, I don't tell you what to examine or not to examine. I just tell you, this is what the rule says. And by that same token, you know, our expertise is more in these policies. And I'm reminded when uh, Pam's question reminds me a little bit, like when, when the pandemic first started, there was essentially like this gold rush of providers who were calling us for consultations where they just envisioned a world where they sat at home and saw patients all day and they didn't have to go to work every day. And, you know, they had like the, like a nationwide, like marketing presence or platform, um, and, and I will address, Pam, Pam's got a question here. Patients are allowed to elect for a visit not to be billed to insurance. A and that is true. My question would be, you know, I, going back to being suspect in the sniff test is, you know, if I were the patient, how are you convincing me that like, what's in it for me to waive my insurance benefits and pay you out of pocket for like this visit that I know is part of my benefits, right? Like, so the whole thing is... Yeah, I'll just kind of let it go there. But, you know, yeah, I mean, we had providers calling us and saying, like, I want to be a coast to coast telehealth medicine provider. And, you know, and, and what that means is what that means is now with the PHE ending, you will have to be credentialed in all states that you wish to engage in. So I want to address this. Comment real quick. Um, and. 
Um, but here's the deal. Patients can ask for a visit not to be billed to the insurance. The problem that they run into and the problem that you run into as a provider's office is if you violate your participation agreement with the insurance company, they have the right to terminate your benefits as a beneficiary, and they also have the right to investigate and or potentially terminate you from participation on the panel as a provider. Remember, with Medicare, <clears throat> if you're going to bill patients outside of their Medicare coverage, you're going to have to opt out of Medicare. There are very specific rules on opting out of Medicare and entering into cash pay arrangements with patients. Remember, Medicare also has policy that specifically stipulates that irrespective of whether or not we reimburse for a service, we still want all services billed to Medicare. And if you have to use a GA modifier as an example, to get the system to kick out a um, patient responsibility ERA, then that's what you're supposed to do. Because remember, Medicare uses all of this billing information for data mining. They use it for statistical purposes. So be very careful when you go down the road of allowing services to be paid for in cash that would normally be covered under an insurance policy, because the first thing that an insurer goes to is nefarious behavior. Why are they asking to pay for this in cash? Are they trying to hide a diagnosis from us? Are they trying to hide something that would now preclude them from coverage under their benefits with our insurance company? So I'll pause there. Any, and any other questions or comments on that? Yeah, yeah I awesome. have one. <laughs> Sorry, I'm the ghost. I'm here. Um, so, you know, the whole time everyone's talking, I agree with everything that's being said, but one of the things I just keep thinking of is this is going to be our struggle. This right here is our struggle of 2023. And this is one thing that I just keep thinking about for the second half of the year you know, with the PHE ending, it's not about how to get around it now. It's not about how to continue to practice the way you did under the waivers. It's ending. We need to look at how you have to compliantly go back into billing and even structuring and setting up your workflow. And this is the one of, one of the things that really does concern me with some of my clients because I have some, for example, they're not fee for service type setup with the way that they're reimbursed but their um i believe it's their pt and ot providers have begun to do more uh, telehealth now it's really more of an assessment they're not hands-on working with the patients which is somewhat questionable as well but you know when we think about the end of the phe do i think that physical therapy is still going to have a way around this and continue to do telehealth not really, because it really didn't make sense to begin with. It was one of the last services to go over to telehealth. So, Absolutely you know, brilliant point. Yeah. As we have these questions, it's just one of those things where we need to be preparing instead of looking at ways to skirt around this. We need to see what is set up under the waiver and figure out how to get it back. Um, compliant to pre-pandemic times or look at how insurances are go going to allow it going forward and stick within their parameters. And one last thing, well, and this is something I would throw back to the panel, um, you know, Sean, the point you were making there is also interesting because I don't really see payers allowing us to dip in and out when it benefits the or the patient. Do we have that in writing? Right. No. But do I think that that's going to have uh, longevity to it where you're going to continue to get reimbursed with no fighting back on that? No. If they see that, I think that's going to be an issue. Yeah. I, I think the best advice that I could give to our listeners um, is this. You've, you, you, the PHE is over, okay? It's now just a formality with rolling through the next, you know, 50 some odd days that's left. 
I understand we have approximately 150 days to re-adapt after the PHE officially ends on, what, what date is that? May 11th? Yeah, May 11th. May yes. 11th. Yeah, but 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 here's what I want to say. Just as we trained our minds to engage in the 1135 waivers and all of the luxuries that were afforded these providers, you now have to start the process of retraining yourself, retraining your compliance team, retraining your auditors, your coders, your billers, most importantly, your clinicians that they now need to revert back to what things were prior to the public health emergency. And what that means is you got to hold education sessions. You can't just say, we got to go back to the way it used to be. Folks, we're three years into this thing, okay? What was it Most that us, used to be? Remember? That's the question yeah. I'm asking. Do you even remember what Listen, it was three years ago? Yeah, most of us can't remember what we did three hours ago, let alone three days ago, so or three years ago. So the point is that I'm trying to make in a long roundabout way is you've got to start putting together educational programs for all of your team members. And if you want to do it the right way, segregate them. Do not have your clinicians in the room at the same time as your non-clinical team because your clinical team will always dominate and your non-clinical team will not feel comfortable asking questions in front of providers, especially if one of the culprits is sitting in the room. Um, <clears throat> there were a couple of things that I want to go around real quick. Um, Betty asked this question, you know, what happens when the patient changes their mind and says now they want you to submit a claim? Well, we should have been submitting a claim all along because we have an, we have an obligation to comply with our participation agreements. The other question becomes, how far after the visit is the patient actually asking us to do it? Because now you could be running up against timely filing for your commercial payers. Medicare, Medicaid, not such a big deal, but we're still in violation if we don't bill for services that would legitimately be covered. But for some reason, the patient doesn't want, you know, the claim submitted. Um, you know, there's another question here, and this may be too long. I don't know if the whole question will show up. Um, Let's see. If the patient insists on not submitting a claim to their insurance, do they sign a form stating they chose to pay out of pocket or are the services billed to their insurance anyways? So my, listen, you could have patients sign whatever it is that you want. At the end of the day, the commercial insurance companies and the government are going to come back to you and say, doesn't matter what the patient asked you to do. It's what's in your contract that you're bound to, your participation agreement. So be very careful on what it is that you are agreeing to do uh, under the table or outside of the norms, because these are the things where you think you're helping the patient. You're actually potentially creating a high risk, high li liability situation for your organization. So uh, the one Paul, thing I think I... you were getting right. Go ahead, Scott. No, I was going to say the the one thing, and this comes up so infrequently that I don't have the rule in front of me, but my understanding is there are certain scenarios where a patient may opt to pay for services in cash in lieu of a claim being filed to insurance. And there are a, a, a thing, there's a bunch of things that go around that. One is that the patient does sign or should sign some sort of agreement for your own protection. Two is you are able to override that patient selection if the patient does not pay for the services in a timely manner and you are also allowed to charge the patient outside of the parameters of the insurance agreement and you know i think it, one of the things that i'm going to make a note for is next week is just to kind of quickly run through that because it is such a rarely used policy that i don't want to say it, it's always this or it's always this i know I've been asked to look that up before, and those were some of the, the conditions that were around it, right? Like the patient couldn't say you can't submit a claim to insurance and then skip out of town without paying you. Um, what you charged was no longer bound by the insurance agreement. Um, but, you know, you do need to read your participation agreements carefully because there are issues related to, you know, patient deductible credits and all kinds of things where there's, it's, it's, it's a more complicated topic than, 
than we can probably uh, contemplate in our time right now. There's also a thing about patients. Some patients don't want certain diagnoses to follow them. And so I've seen that um, with some high risk patients uh, with um, the HIV, some patients that um, there's been just um, certain things with psychiatry. So some sensitive topics and, and some sensitive um, diagnoses that they really just did not want that, um, you know, dealt with. And so on, from an insurance standpoint, but then what happens is I see some op, some practices calling the payer, which I absolutely would say, call the payer generically. Say, you know, I have one of your subscribers and they don't want to um, submit a claim. What are my options based on our policy that we've signed or our, you know, contract? You don't want to say, so this is the patient, this is the diagnosis, and this is what they don't want billed. You've just blown it. So, and, and there's some, you know, HIPAA concerns there. So make sure that you are, you know, finding out from the payer, just like Scott was saying, what the specific contract stipulation is, if, if there is one. And if there isn't, you got to have a policy in your office on how to handle it. Um, but Medicare is yeah. pretty specific. That's why they put out their ABN notice and their waiver. And all that says is a patient is signing it is because it may not be covered, not because it isn't covered. If it's a non-covered st service statutorily, then you can, you know, charge the patient cash. But if it's something that, most throughout there may be an echo. They already had one within the last six months. So there's a frequency guideline that it may not be covered if you want to have another one um, in two months. Um, that's what the waivers are for. Their patients understand that this is covered. Colonoscopy, screenings are covered every 24 months for high-risk patients. Well, some of those age patients in Medicare age have poor memory and or bad historians and they don't remember when they had their last one. So you have an ABN sign so they know there's a possibility they may have to pay for it if the frequency guideline wasn't met or the local coverage determinations on diagnoses. But that's the not indication. to say, yeah, we can do whatever we want. And you know, it, it reminds me of, of what I ran into probably 10, 15 years ago. <clears throat> I had an ASC that decided that um, they were going to give 20% discounts to all patients who paid cash and they weren't going to bill their insurance. And they had some ASC approved surgeries. And so the surgeries were being done on, so the physician was having a bill, but the, there was no um, facility. And so the insurance companies came back, all of them. I mean, every single one between United Healthcare, Blues, Aetna's, Cigna, didn't matter. And they're like, where's the facility? Where did you have this done? And they're like, oh, I had it done at this ASC, you know, my physician owns. Well, they're like, well, we didn't get a bill. Oh, I know. They gave me a discount to, you know, to, to pay it out of pocket. Well, the insurance company said, so their actual fee is this, not what they're billing us. And the second thing, it turned out that after some investigation by one of the major carriers, they found out that that ASC wasn't accredited. It had not had the JCO scores. It didn't do anything to make sure that they were on the up and up. And like Sean just said, and Paul said, it's a mess if you do not follow, um, you know, just rules about contracting, about regulatory rules, and, and not just allow patients to make the decisions when now you are dealing with certain legal ramifications, not just healthcare issues. What I tend to see in this space, whenever a doctor is saying, I'm going to just charge cash, is that they're trying to avoid some type of administrative headache. Uh, you know, I had a family practice physician who said, I'm going to offer acupuncture but I've uh, looked at my uh, insurance coverages and it doesn't look like any of my uh, major insurers cover acupuncture. So I'm just going to offer it as a cash service. You know, so they're basically punting all the regulatory hurdles that they need for something like that. Whenever they're trying to do that, they're trying to just avoid uh, administrative headaches that come from uh, adding a new service to your practice and then trying to get it uh, billed. I mean, Sean and I have had uh, two cases recently where physicians are paying for all of this, or they're uh, uh, charging for all of this autonomic uh, testing and you know crazy types of uh, you know large scale testing uh, from a physician based on the assumption that uh, this that a covered chronic condition is going to cover it. Well, you know where's the medical necessity in that? I mean, it's it's a little bit nuts. You know, it, uh, it's not the wild west. It's not. That's a great way to put it. Sean, can you speak to what Pam put up there? Because I think there's more to it than yeah, just so, that they can. And, and Pam, Pam's going down the right road, right? 
So when you're talking about 42 USC, you're talking about the United States Code. Um, and what Pam is talking about is um, 17935. And this section actually talks about restrictions on certain disclosures and sales of health information. Uh, it, it takes into consideration accounting of certain protected health information disclosures, access to certain information in electronic format. So in, in, clear, in clear legal speak, this is how they set it out. In the case that an individual requests under paragraph A, section 1IA of section 164.522 of Title 45, Code of Federal Regulations, that a covered entity restrict the disclosure of protected health information of the individual, notwithstanding paragraph A12 of such section, the covered entity must comply with the requested restriction if, except as otherwise required by law, the disclosure is to a health plan for purposes of carrying out payment or healthcare operations and is not for purposes of carrying out treatment. See, you got that's you, huge. That's you huge. have to look, yeah, you have to look at the entire section of the the law, right? Because and 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 Pam, you're going in the right direction. I, I understand, you know, as soon as I saw you start to post about the high tech rule, I knew where you were going with that. And again, you have you have the ability to restrict, or a patient has the ability to restrict a disclosure that's required by law to a health plan for purposes of carrying out payment and other healthcare operations. Now remember, <clears throat> when you start thinking about TPO, the T stands for treatment. And to, um, to have a patient restrict you from sharing information with an insurance company where you are carrying out treatment, that is not a, pers that is not a, a permitted uh, exclusion. So what I will do is I will post this right here for anyone. Um, and then the other exception to that is the protected health information pertains solely to a healthcare item or service for which the healthcare provider involved has been paid out of pocket in full. So there's there's two disclosures that have been made here, and I'll go ahead and get those into the description later. All right, great great uh, dialogue. Thank you so much, Pam, because you know I love when people get us thinking about this stuff. All right, um, Terry, you you brought up something earlier. Um, prior to the um, prior to the show starting, and and I started chuckling about these. One of these was for a practice wanting to offer free colonoscopy screenings on Saturdays, but only if the patients don't have insurance. And the other one was, um, yeah, um, that the physician uh, doesn't want to bill the patient's insurance for surgery that they're going to have in two weeks since he diagnosed right. it while they had coverage but their coverage ends in a month. So can he bill it and then just credit the account to apply later? Yeah. I want to talk about that one second because I want to talk about what's referred to as a reverse false claim. Okay. So let me talk first about ahead. the colonoscopy thing. So how this even came up is that, um, and I'm telling you guys, you know, if you're my girlfriend and, and this is not, if you're in my group of girlfriends, this is not a party to me. There was a group of girls and ladies that, went, then they were over 50. So I guess we're not girls anymore. I was trying, um, but group, a group of women that basically said um, for the 50th birthday of one of their friends, they were all going to have colonoscopies. And they went to this, I know, I in a limo, they were even going to take themselves to this office. It gets better. We so are not going no, with them, Terry. Yeah, on no, that I'm party. not. No, I'm no, just, no, no, Stephanie, no, no. we're not going. None of us are going on that <laughs> yeah, trip. This is not my idea of a party. But okay, I, I saw the concept and I was like, all right, they're trying to be, you know, whatever, conscious. Yeah, you do that on your own time. <laughs> so anyway, they went to this practice to see if they could get a discount. Well, then the, they decided the practice is like, oh, we'll open it up for um, patients who don't have insurance. And we'll do it on a Saturday morning between, you know, these four hours 
And, uh, but anybody who has insurance, we're going to charge. I'm like, oh, no, no, no. Paul's laughing his butt off on here. So here's, here's the problem. And it, it was, it was not comical, but it was insightful for, to me, how about that, for the payer that came back, came back uh, in a couple of the things that they were talking about, because I did some research on it. And the payer said, if it's during normal business hours and you don't offer it for free for anybody that during normal business hours, then you're, you're in violation of your contract. So if you want to do it on your off hours, like Sunday or something, you could do it as a, a community service type thing. As long as you offer it to the community, they know, and you, you advertise that way. Um, <clears throat> and it's not just to a particular group, but it was interesting that they were trying to to do this as, you know, a real positive thing for the community. But the payers were like, hold on, payers want the discount too. So they want, they want to get the discount just as much as, as a cash patient. So if you're going to offer it, um, you have to do it on hours that are not normal business hours where you don't have patients under insurance plans who are being charged for the like service. And now as I'm helping with some contracting and doing some credentialing, which I'm not credentialing, contracting, I have to clarify that. Um, I'm starting to see that that is definitely uh, within the contracts. And so it, it's crazy what they're putting in contracts now, but that was probably the most amusing one I've seen ever. But Sean, before you get into the one about trying to get paid and save for a rainy day, because you know yep. people did that with some of the PPP stuff and provider relief funding, they still have it sitting there. Um, yep. Something that we did last week, I just wanted to bring it up, I forgot, I didn't want to forget. So you know how you and uh, Paul were talking about you can infer from the note, sort of. I mean, well, we had. Yeah, sort of yeah, kind of in a Well, I had way. a couple people contact me and say, so Sean said, and I'm like, I love those. What did Sean say? And they're like, so Sean said that um, you can infer from the note. So if I just have a diabetic diagnosis there, then that means that patient's automatically a level five high risk because they take longer to heal. I'm like, Okay, so I actually went back and listened to everything we said just to see where I was going with that. I'm like, that's not what Sean and Paul said, or Scott. What was said mm. was, is if let's say the patient is diabetic or insulin dependent, and you're doing A1C tests. And so you're trying to make sure you have a diagnosis for that particular test, and you actually do have a diagnosis. That's what can be linked or inferred. It's not you're you're not inferring any kind of risk to that patient. You're not inferring any kind of further treatment, you're trying to basically say this, this one test is justified by this diagnosis. Was that correct? Okay. It's <laughs> just funny. Sean funny. said, so I just thought that was funny. It's like, Oh, you, you know, your, your word is gold. You better be careful <laughs> what people interpret you said. And then I'm like, that's not what was said. Yeah. I, and I appreciate that, Terry. <clears throat> Again, when Paul and I were talking about inference in a medical record, we were talking about the fact that if something was easily inferred because there's enough information in other aspects from a clinical judgment standpoint that those could infer the reason why a diagnostic test was being ordered or why a laboratory service was being ordered, then that's where inference comes into play. It's not in if there's a generic diagnosis that's provided and then it's taken to six levels above that. And now all of a sudden we have, you know, I mean, that's that's why HCC audits are so huge right now and they're going to be. But I want to talk about and, you know, uh, I, I think Chris, who was it who was talking about getting their girlfriends together for colonoscopies in a limo? Yeah, it reminded me of the Cindy Lauper song. I think that's who sang it, right? Girls just want to have fun. Um, but anyways, we'll not that we'll move kind on. of fun. Um, no, Paul. Paul, you're not you're no. not a Cindy Lauper just fan. Just do tequila shots when you turn fifty. Come on, come on, you know. <laughs> okay. All right. So I want to go. <clears throat> I want to go to a very important topic, and you know, I I love when we get to throw some humor in here, but I I want to. I want to talk about something called a reverse false claim because I don't think a lot of folks understand. You know, everybody talks about the False Claims Act, but you don't hear a lot of folks talking about the reverse false claims. And you got to remember that we're we we exist in what's referred to as a pay and chase system, right? The payers pay us 
and then they chase us later on down the road, six months, a year, five years, 10 years down the road, they chase us for the money. Now, if we know that we submitted a claim, and at the time of the claim submission, we were in a place where we knew or should have known that there was likelihood that the falsity of the claim could be challenged, then we have to worry about what's referred to as a reverse false claims violation. So what you have to think about is the core principle of reverse false claims is that the wrongdoer, him or herself, has prevented the government from collecting what is owed them, right? It's the easiest way to think about it. A reverse false claim basically in healthcare means that you are preventing the government from collecting what it is owed. In the cases of healthcare, what is it that the government's owed? A refund. They are due a refund of overpayments for services that you were not entitled to receive remuneration for. So a common example, um, you know, um, you know, that I run into is when uh, uh, a provider calls me or an attorney calls me and says, hey, Sean, listen, here's the deal, right? We we have received or my client has received some remunerations, right? They submitted claims. They were processed. They were adjudicated. And they received the remunerations for that. My client would like to know if they could just take that money and put it into another account and hold on to it for, you know, uh, when the insurance company uh, reaches out and says, hey, you were overpaid and we'd like our money back. No, you can't do that. That is why there are two things. Under the Affordable Care Act, you have the voluntary refund. This is the Medicare disclosure refund or self-disclosure refund, which means you are voluntarily disclosing to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services that you have received monies for which you are not entitled to. You make that through a bona fide disclosure by doing a look-back period. The look-back period for CMS in a civil matter is six years. Now, if you are looking at it from something that could potentially rise to the level of fraud, waste, or abuse, then you have to use the OIG self-disclosure protocol. And you want to use these protocols to take the wind out of the sails of an investigator, out of a governmental agency. Because what are they going to do? They're going to come and investigate you after you've already made a bona fide disclosure, refunding all the monies that you had to refund. And now they're going to waste resources, both financial and human capital. They're not going to be, it's like taking a rock and banging it on the ground, hoping you're going to get some water out of it. It, it, There's nothing there. That's why you have to be proactive. You have to be preemptive in your thought process for returning monies that you're not entitled to. So let me pause there because I know I said a whole lot. And um, let me go, Christine, Paul, Scott, Terry, uh, Ghost, Allen. I couldn't agree more. Sean, and, and recently I had a, an audit that came through and there were uh, a lot of, okay, more than a lot of errors. Like we, they were billing for non-credentialed people under somebody else. And when we brought this to their attention, well, what do we do? And I said, well, you, you know, you really need to do an overpayment. That money doesn't belong to you. You weren't entitled to it. Well, maybe we should just take our chances and see if they catch us. You're caught. You're already caught. You know, you're caught. That's what I get a lot as well, Christine. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't really like what I'm saying when it's that type of situation. And usually it spans, you know, quite a time period. Many, many services. Um, when it comes to credentialing, when I've heard that they did not even currently have the providers credentialed. So when I let them know that it wasn't appropriate to keep the reimbursement up to that point, um, you know, that was another issue. Well, you know, it takes so many months to get credentialed and they've got all of these, um, you know, appointments scheduled. What do we do with the patients? What do we do with the money? And, um, you know, that they're really not entitled to that at that point. It, it is and I should put the caveat, depending on payer, right? 
depending on payer, depending on credentialing. But there were many providers working. Some, I, I will add, uh, had situations such as an NP being billed under a PA who was credentialed and things like that. So this was, you know, very obvious issues. They were fully aware of what credentialing needed to be done, and they just continued to do it this way instead. What's even worse is is if if anything has been sent via email, a, a report of findings, it's now part of a permanent document where you knew it. You can't bury your head in the sand at that point. The, 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 it's out of the bag, you know? You have to deal with it at that point. But I, I get that a lot, Stephanie. It seems to be that a, a lot of providers would rather take the risk than to do the right thing. And But they tell me, Christine, that they sent the email but didn't sign it, so they won't be found out. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I, I put this up here. I put this up here. Uh, Barbara Cabuzzi. I've known Barbara for good Lord, pretty much since I've been in healthcare. Barbara's a hundred percent spot on. Yep. She's a hundred percent spot on. Let's just clarify it. Okay. So from the date of identification of a potential problem, you have six months under the affordable care act to conduct your investigation. Once you confirm the overpayment, that is when the 60-day clock begins to be able to refund the money. So you have a total of eight months between conducting your investigation and then issuing your refund. So great point, Barbara. Uh, nice to have you with us today. All right. I think um, one thing, Sean, to wrap it up is basically when your yeah. providers have a bright idea, you need to start doing some due diligence and say, hold on a minute, because I know that there's a lot of physicians who come back after doing a surgery one day and they were with their buddies or, you know, and I'm saying this not in a non-gender way. So it could be female or male physicians um, that basically they're with their buddies in the in the OR or at the hospital or even in the break room. And somebody says, look what I'm billing. You should do that, too. And then they come back and start doing it without doing any kind of research to find out if it's okay to do that. And so, it, I mean, I'm seeing advanced care planning being done for patients who are 24 years old who have nothing in the hopper as far as going to pass away or, you know, there's there's any reason that death is imminent. And they're saying, well, we do it with all our patients now because the doctor down the street did it and we're getting $85 a patient. And I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah. you know, things like that are adding. What was that thing, Sean, you had said? Something they were adding, um, to uh, what was it um was it the umbilical cord something for orthopedic just because they heard it down the street <laughs> barbara locker room coding it totally is it's something they hear uh, yeah. somewhere and they're just like hey let's do this and you're talking about the amniotic yeah you're talking yes, about the yes. amniotic i have yeah, a client who just asked me how to do that yeah let's not even I, go there so as well, you can see i put my i put my swimming goggles back on <laughs> because, because i feel like we're under we're underwater it. Go ahead, Paul. You had something that you wanted yeah, to say, yeah. and we'll start well, wrapping this thing I, up. I've said this before. The well-informed colleague is the biggest, uh, sometimes the biggest enemy of uh, us teaching compliance to a physician. It's like, well, I have a colleague in state X who's performing this service, and they're getting paid for it. It's like, well, that's great for your colleague in state X, but you are not him, and you are not there. Uh, so you need to stop that, you know. <laughs> so. absolutely all right well i think that's going to take us right to the edge of our time here this week on the compliance guy coding and compliance roundtable as always i'm so grateful to terry fletcher paul spencer stephanie Allard, christine hall and scott Kraft for taking time out of their busy, busy schedules to hang out with me and to each and every single one of you that logs in tunes in and hangs out with us each and every single week Thank you all so much. We thoroughly enjoy being here. We love the fact that you all are so engaged with us. You ask and so many great questions. You put up such great information for us to expand upon. As always, great show, y'all. We're going to be back, Terry and I, tomorrow with uh, our hashtag Terry Tuesday episode. And we're talking about time-based services. I think it's going to be a pretty fascinating one. And we'll get that one posted for y'all sometime tomorrow. So until then, remember, be good to yourself, but more importantly, y'all be good to each other. Take care. You've been listening to The Compliance Guy. 
Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy.